Hello everyone, this is Evelyn, and I just finished reading to you part one of The Alchemist. It started last weekend. I'm going to be doing these every Sunday in September and longer if it's necessary. I uh, had shared on the podcast that I was going on a road trip in September, and so I was taking a break from the podcast itself. And so uh, this year, as part of the goals in the podcast content, I have challenged myself with reading more and uh, kind of contributing to uh, sharing the lessons in the books that I love and ones that I'm interested in with everybody who listens. So I hope that you're enjoying this. Again, one doesn't really have anything directly to do with the other. You'll still understand and hopefully enjoy the podcast content without listening to the books. Uh, but I am able to do them commercial free and I don't do any background so that you can hear them better. I oftentimes have to use different equipment to read the books. And for this one, it's not electronic. I'm reading it old school style. So you'll hear the pages turning in the background. And being that it's the first time that I'm reading it while I'm on with you, I apologize in advance for any stuttering that I might have or any words that I read mispronounce or have to read over again. Um, but I am sure appreciative that you're spending this time with me and, uh, going through the motions of listening to this book at the same time that I'm reading it. I, um, I hope that I'm giving this book the justice that it deserves and I'm really into it right now. So without further ado, I'm just going to jump in and get started. And again, this is as a, you know, in continuum, to the 1.5 episode that we had right before this. So this is part two of The Alchemist. The boy had been working for the crystal merchant for almost a month, and he could see that he wasn't exactly doing the kind of job that would make him happy. The merchant spent the entire day mumbling behind the counter, telling the boy to be careful with the pieces not to break anything. But he stayed with the job because of the merchant. Although he was an old grouch, treated him fairly. The boy received a good commission for each piece he sold and had already been able to put some money aside. That morning, he had done some calculating. If he continued to work every day as he had been, he would need a whole year to be able to buy some more sheep. I'd like to build a display case for the crystal, the boy said to the merchant. We could place it outside and attract those people who pass it at the bottom of the hill. I've never had one before, the merchant answered. People will pass by and bump into it. The pieces will be broken. Well, when I took my sheep through the field, some of them might have died if we had come upon a snake, but that's the way life is with sheep and shepherds. The merchant turned to the customer who wanted their three crystal glasses. He was selling better than ever, as if time had turned back the clock to the old days when the street had been one of Tangier's major attractions. Business has really improved, he said to the boy after the customer had left. I'm doing much better, and soon you'll be able to return to your sheep. Why ask more out of life? Because we have to respond to the omens, the boy said, almost without meaning to. Then he regretted that he had said that because the merchant had never met the king. It's called the principle of favorability. Beginner's luck. 
because life wants you to achieve your personal legend, the old king had said. But the merchant understood what the boy had said. The boy's very presence in the shop was an omen, and time had passed, and money was pouring into the cash drawer. He had no regrets about having hired the boy. The boy was being paid more money than he had deserved, because the merchant was thinking that the sales wouldn't amount to much, he'd offer to pay the boy a high commission rate. He had assumed that he would soon return to his sheep. Why didn't you want to get to the pyramids, he asked, to get away from the business of the display? Because I've always heard about them, the boy answered, saying nothing about his dream. The treasure was now nothing but a painful memory, and he tried to avoid thinking about it. I don't know anyone around here who would want to cross the desert just to see the pyramids, said the merchant. They're just a pile of stones. You could build one in your backyard. You've never had dreams of travel, said the boy, turning to wait on a customer who had entered the shop. Two days later, the merchant spoke to the boy about the display. I didn't much like change, he said. You and I aren't like Hassan, that rich merchant. If he makes a buying mistake... It doesn't affect him much, but we too have to live with our mistakes. That's true enough, the boy thought, ruefully. Why did you think we should have the display? I want to get back to my sheep faster. We have to take advantage when that luck is on our side to do as much to help it as it's doing to help us. It's called the principle of favorability or beginner's luck. The merchant was silent for a few moments. Then he said, the prophet gave us the Quran and left us five obligations to satisfy during our times in our lives. The most important is to believe only in one true God. The others are to pray four or five times a day, fast during Ramadan, and be charitable to the poor. He stopped there. His eyes filled with tears as he spoke of the prophet. He was a devout man and even with all of his impatience, he wanted to live a life in accordance with the Muslim law. What's the fifth obligation, the boy asked. Two days ago, you said that I had never dreamed to travel, the merchant answered. The fifth obligation of every Muslim is pilgrimage. We are obliged at least once in our lives to visit the holy city of Mecca. Mecca is a lot farther away than the pyramids. When I was young, all I wanted to do was put together enough money to start this shop. I thought that someday I'd be rich and I could go to Mecca. I began to make some money, but I could never bring myself to leave someone in charge of the shop. The crystals are delicate things. At the same time, people were passing by my shop all the time, heading for Mecca. Some of them were rich pilgrims, traveling in caravans with servants and camels. But most of the people making the pilgrimage were poorer than I. All who went there were happy at having done so, they had placed the symbols of the pilgrimage on the doors of their houses. One of them, a cobbler who made his living mending boots, said that he'd traveled for almost a year through the desert, but that he'd got more tired when he had to walk through the streets of Tangier buying his leather. Well, why don't you go to Mecca now? asked the boy. Because it's the thought of Mecca that keeps me alive. That's what helps me face these days that are all the same. These mute crystals on the shelves and the lunch and dinner at the same horrible cafe. I'm afraid that if my dream is realized, I'll have no reason to go on living. You dream about your sheep in the pyramids, but you're different from me. 
because you want to realize your dreams. I just want to dream about Mecca. I've already imagined a thousand times crossing the desert, arriving at the plaza of the sacred stone. The seven times I walk around it before allowing myself to touch it. I've already imagined the people who would be at my side and those in front of me and the conversations and prayers that we would share. But I'm afraid that it would all be a disappointment, so I prefer to just dream about it. That day, the merchant gave the boy permission to build the display. Not everyone can see his dreams come true in the same way. Two more months passed, and the shelf brought many customers into the crystal shop. The boy estimated that if he worked for six more months, he could return to Spain and buy the 60 sheep and yet another 60. In less than a year, he would have doubled his flock and he would be able to do business with the Arabs because he was now able to speak their strange language. Since that morning in the marketplace, he had never again made use of the Urim and the Thummim because Egypt is now just a distant dream for him as was Mecca for the merchant. Anyway, the boy had become happy in his work and thought all the time about the day when he would disembark at a tarifa as a winner. You must always know what it is that you want, the old king had said. The boy knew and now was working to ward it. Maybe it was his treasure to have wound up in that strange land, met up with a thief, and doubled the size of his flock without spending a cent. He was proud of himself. He had learned how to do the important things like how to deal in crystal and about the language without words and about omens. One afternoon, he had seen a man at the top of the hill complaining that it was impossible to find a decent, a decent place to get something to drink after such a climb. The boy, accustomed to recognizing the omens, spoke to the merchant. Let's sell tea to the people who climb the hill. Lots of places sell tea around here, the merchant said, but we could sell tea in the crystal glasses. The people will enjoy the tea and they'll want to buy the glasses. I've been told that beauty is, in the, is the great seducer of men. The merchant didn't respond, but that afternoon, after saying his prayers and closing the shop, he invited the boy to sit with him and share in the hookah that strange pipe used by the arabs what is it that you're you're looking for asked the old merchant i have already told you i need to buy my sheep back so i can earn the money so i have to earn the money to do so the merchant put some new coals in the hookah and inhaled deeply i've had this in the shop for 30 years I know good crystal from bad and everything else there is to know about crystal. I know its dimensions and how it behaves. If we serve the tea and the crystal, the shop is going to expand and then I'll have to change my way of life. Well, isn't that good? I'm already used to the way that things are. Before you came, I was thinking about how much time I had wasted in the same place while my friends had moved on. And the others went bankrupt and some did better than they had done before. It made me very depressed. Now I can see that it hasn't been too bad. The shop is exactly the size that I've always wanted it to be. I don't want to change anything because I don't know how to deal with change. I'm used to it the way that I am. 
Boy didn't know what to say. The old man continued, You have been a real blessing to me. Today I understand something that I didn't see before. Every blessing ignored becomes a curse. I don't want anything else in life, but you're forcing me to look at wealth and the horizons, and these are things that I've never known. Now that I've seen them, and now that I see how my immense possibilities can be that are out there, I'm going to feel worse than I did before you arrived, because I know now the things that I should be, I could be able to accomplish, and I don't want to do so. It's good I refrained from saying anything to the baker and the tarifa, thought the boy to himself. They went to smoking the pipe for a while as the sun began to set. They were conversing in Arabic, and the boy was proud of himself for being able to do so. There had been a time when he thought that his sheep could teach him everything that he needed to know about the world, but they could never have taught him Arabic. There are probably other things in the world that the sheep can't teach me, thought the boy as he regarded the old merchant. All they ever do really is look for food and water, and maybe it wasn't that they were teaching me, but I, I was learning from them. Mekwe, the merchant said finally. What does that mean? <laughs> you would have to have been born Arab to understand, he answered. But in your language, it would be something like it is written. And as he smothered the coals in the hookah, he told the boy that he could begin to sell the tea in the crystal glasses. Sometimes there's just no way to hold back a river. The men climbed the hill, and they were tired when they reached the top. But there they saw the crystal shop that offered their refreshing mint tea. They went in to drink the tea, and it was served in these beautiful crystal glasses. My wife never thought of this, said one, and he bought some crystal. He was entertaining guests that night, and the guests would be impressed by the beauty of the glassware. The other man remarked that the tea was always more delicious when it was served in the crystal because the aroma was retained. The third said that it was a tradition in the Orient to use crystal glasses for tea because it had magical powers. Before long, the news had spread and great many people began to climb the hill to see the shop that was doing something new in the trade that was so old. Other shops were opened that served tea and crystal, but they weren't at the top of a hill and they had very little business. Eventually, the merchant had to hire two more employees. He began to import enormous quantities of tea along with his crystal, and his shop was sought out by men and women with a thirst for things new. And in that way, the months had passed. The boy awoke before dawn. It had been eleven months and nine days since he'd first set foot on that African continent. He dressed in his Arabian clothing of white linen bought especially for this day. He put on a headcloth in place and secured it with a ring made of camel skin. Wearing his new sandals, he descended the stairs silently. The city was still sleeping. He prepared himself a sandwich and drank some hot tea from the crystal glass. Then he sat in the sun-filled doorway smoking the hookah. He smoked in silence thinking of nothing and listening to the sound of the wind that brought the scent of the desert. When he had finished his smoke, he reached into one of his pockets and sat there for a few moments, regarding what he had withdrawn. It was a bundle of money, enough to 
buy himself a hundred and twenty sheep, a return ticket, and a license to import products from Africa into his own country. He waited patiently for the merchant to awaken and open the shop. Then the two went off to have some more tea. I'm leaving today, said the boy. I have the money I need to buy the sheep, and you have the money that you need to go to Mecca. The old man said nothing. Will you give me your blessing? asked the boy. You've helped me. The man continued to prepare his tea, saying nothing. Then he turned to the boy. I am proud of you, he said. You brought a new feeling into my crystal shop, but you know that I'm not going to go to Mecca, just as you know that you are not going to buy your sheep. Who told you that? asked the boy, startled. Mechtwab said the old crystal merchant, and he gave the boy his blessing. The boy went into his room and packed his belongings. They filled three sacks. As he was leaving, he saw in the corner of the room his old shepherd's pouch. It was bunched up, and he'd hardly thought of it for a long time. As he took his jacket out of the pouch, thinking he gave it to someone on the street, the two stones fell to the floor, Urum and Thummim. It made the boy think of the old king, and it startled him to realize how long it had been since he'd thought about it for him. For nearly a year, he'd been working incessantly, thinking of only putting aside enough money so that he could return to Spain with pride. Never stop dreaming, the old king had said. Follow the omens. The boy picked up the Urim and the Thummim, and once again had the strange sensation that the old king was nearby. He had worked hard for a year, and the omens were that it was time to go. I'm going to go back and do just what I had done before, the boy thought, even though the sheep didn't teach me to speak Arabic. But the sheep had taught him something even more important, that there was a language in the world that everyone understood, a language the boy had used throughout the time that he was trying to improve things at the shop. It was a language of enthusiasm, of things accomplished with love and purpose as part of the search for something believed and desired. Tangier was no longer a strange city, and he felt that just as he'd conquered this place, he could conquer the world. When you want something, all the universe conspires to help you to achieve it, the old king had said. But the old king hadn't said anything about being robbed or about the endless deserts or about people who know what their dreams are but don't want to realize them. The old king hadn't told him that the pyramids were just a pile of stones or that anyone could build one in their backyard. And he had forgotten to mention that when you have enough money to buy a flock larger than the one that you had before, you should buy it. The boy picked up his pouch and put it with the other things. He went down the stairs and found the merchant waiting on a foreign couple. The two other customers walked about the shop, drinking tea from the crystal glasses. It was more activity than usual for this time of the morning. From where he stood, he saw for the very first time that the old merchant's hair was very much like the hair of the old king. He remembered the smile of the candy seller on the first day in Tangier, when he had nothing to eat and was and nowhere to go, and that smile had also been like the king's old smile. It's almost as if he'd been there and left his mark, he thought. And yet, none of these people has ever met the old king. On the other hand, he said that he always appeared to help those who were trying to realize their personal legend. 
he left without saying goodbye to the crystal merchant. He didn't want to cry with the other people there. He was going to miss that place and all the good things that he'd learned. He was more confident in himself, though, and he felt as though he could conquer the world. But I'm going to go back to the fields that I know to take care of my flock again. He said that to himself with certainty, but he was no longer happy with his decision. He had worked for an entire year to make a dream come true, and that dream minute by minute was becoming less important, maybe because that really wasn't his dream. Who knows? Maybe it's better to be like the crystal merchant and never go to Mecca and just go through life wanting to do so, he thought, again trying to convince himself. But as he held Urim and Thurim in his hand, they had transmitted to him the strength and will of the old king. By coincidence, or maybe it was an omen, the boy thought, he came to the bar he had entered on his first day there. The thief wasn't there, and the owner brought him a cup of tea. I can always go back to being a shepherd, the boy thought. I learned how to care for the sheep, and I haven't forgotten how that's done. But maybe... I'll never have another chance to get to the pyramids in Egypt. The old man wore a breastplate of gold, and he knew about my past. He really was a king, a wise king. The hills of Andalusia were only two hours away, but there was an entire desert between him and the pyramids. Yet the boy felt that there was another way to regard his situation. He was actually two hours closer to his treasure. The fact that two hours had stretched into an entire year didn't really matter to him. I know why I want to get back to my flock, he thought. I understand sheep. They're no longer a problem, and they can be good friends. On the other hand, I didn't know if the desert could be a friend, and it's in the desert that I have to search for my treasure. If I don't find it, I can always go home. I finally have enough money and all the time that I need. Why not? He suddenly felt tremendously happy. He could always go back to being a shepherd. He could always become a crystal salesman again. Maybe the world had other hidden treasures, but he had a dream and he had met with a king. That doesn't happen to just anyone. He was planning as he left the bar. He had remembered that one of the crystal merchant suppliers transported his crystal by means of caravans that had crossed the desert. He held the Urim and Thummim in his hand. Because of those two stones, he was once again on the way to his treasure. I am always nearby. When someone wants to realize their personal legend, the old king had told him. What could it cost to go over the supplier's warehouse and find out the pyramids were really that far away? The Englishman was sitting on a bench in a structure that smelled of animals, sweat, and dust. It was part of a warehouse, part corral. I never thought I would end up in a place like this, he thought as he leafed through the pages of the chemical journal. Ten years of the university, and here I am at the coral. But he had to move on. He believed in omens. All of his life and all of his studies were aimed at finding the one true language of the universe. First, he had studied Esperanto, the world's religions, and now it was alchemy. He knew how to speak Esperanto. He understood all of the major religions well, but he wasn't yet an alchemist. He had unraveled all of the truths behind important questions, but his studies had taken him to a point beyond where he could not seem to go. He had tried in vain to establish a relationship with an alchemist, but the alchemists were strange people who thought only about themselves and almost always refused to help him.
Who knows, maybe they had failed to discover the secret of the masterwork, the philosopher's stone, and, for this reason, kept their knowledge to themselves. He had already spent much of the fortune left to him by his father, fruitlessly seeking the philosopher's stone. He had spent enormous amounts of time at the great libraries of the world, and had purchased all of the rarest, most important volumes on the alchemy. In one that he had read that many years ago, a famous Arabian alchemist had visited Europe. It was said that he was more than 200 years old and that he discovered the Philosopher's Stone and the Elixir of Life. The Englishman had been profoundly impressed by the story, but he never would have thought it more than just a myth. It had not a friend of his, returning from an archaeological expedition in the desert, told him about an Arab that was possessed of exceptional powers. He lives at the Alfoyam Oasis, his friend had said, and people say that he is 200 years old and is able to transform any metal into gold. The Englishman could not contain his excitement. He canceled all of his commitments and pulled together the most important of his books. And now here he was, sitting inside a dusty, smelly warehouse, outside a huge caravan, being prepared for crossing of the Sahara, and was scheduled to pass through the Alfoyum. I'm going to find that damned alchemist, the Englishman thought, and the odor of the animals became a bit more tolerable. A young Arab, also loaded down with baggage, entered and greeted the Englishman. Where are you bound? said the young Arab. I'm going into the desert, the man answered, turning his back to his reading. He didn't want any conversation at this point. What he needed to do was review all that he had learned over the years because the alchemist would certainly put him to the test. The young Arab took out the book and began to read. The book was written in Spanish. That's good, thought the Englishman. He had spoke Spanish better than Arabic, and if this was the boy that was going to Alfoyum, then there would be someone there to talk to when there were no other important things to do. That's strange, said the boy, as he tried once again to read the burial scene that began the book. I've been trying for two years to read this book, and I've never gotten past these first few pages. Even without a king to provide an interruption, he was unable to concentrate. He still had some doubts about the decision that he had made, but he was able to understand one thing, Making the decision was not just the beginning of things. It was everything to him. When sometimes and someone makes a decision, he is really diving into the strong current that will carry him to places that he had never dreamt of when he first made the decision initially. When I asked to seek out my treasure, I never imagined that I'd wind up working in a crystal shop, he thought, and joining the caravan may have been my decision, but... Where it goes is going to be a mystery to me. Nearby was the Englishman reading a book. He seemed unfriendly. He had looked irritated when the boy had entered. They might have even become friends, but the Englishman was closed off for the conversation. The boy closed his book. He felt that he didn't want to do anything that might make him look like the Englishman. He took the Urim and Thummim from his pocket and began playing with them. The stranger shouted, Umim and Thurum? In a flash, the boy put them back in his pocket. They're not for sale, he said. They're not worth that much, the Englishman answered. They're only made of mock crystal, and there are millions of crystals in the earth. 
But those who know about those things would know that those are Urum and Thummim. I didn't know that they had them in this part of the world. They were given to me as a present by the king, the boy said. The stranger didn't answer. Instead, he put his hand in his pocket and he took out two stones that were the same as the boy's. Did you say a king, he asked. I guess you don't believe that a king would talk to someone like me, a shepherd, he said, wanting to end the conversation. Not at all. It was the shepherds who were first to recognize a king that the rest of the world refused to acknowledge. So it's not surprising that the kings would talk to shepherds. And he went on, fearing that the boy wouldn't understand what he was talking about. It's in the Bible, the same book that was taught about Umum and Thummim. These stones were the only form of divination permitted by God. The priests carried them in a golden breastplate. The boy was suddenly happy to be there at the warehouse. Maybe this is an omen, said the Englishman, half aloud. Who told you about omens? The boy's interest was increasing by the moment. Everything in life is an omen, said the Englishman. Now closing the journal he was reading. There is a universal language, understood by everybody, but already forgotten. I am in search of that universal language, amongst other things. That's why I'm here. I have to find a man who knows that universal language, an alchemist. The conversation was interrupted by the warehouse boss. You're in luck, you two, the fat Arab said. There's a caravan leaving today for al -Foyim. But I'm going to Egypt, the boy said. al is in Egypt, said the Arab. What kind of Arab are you? That's a good luck omen, the Englishman said after the fat Arab had gone out. If I could, I'd write a huge encyclopedia just about the words luck and coincidence. It's with those words that the universal language is written. He told the boy that it was no coincidence that he had met with him with the Urim, with the Urim and Thurim in his hand. And he asked the boy if he too were in search of the alchemist. I'm looking for treasure, said the boy. He said immediately and regretted having setting it, but the Englishman appeared not to attach any importance to it. In a way, so am I, he said. I don't even know what alchemy is, the boy was saying, when the warehouse boss called to them to come outside. I'm the leader of this caravan, said the dark-eyed bearded man. I hold the power of life and death for every person I take with me. The desert is a capricious lady, and sometimes she drives men crazy. There were almost 200 people gathered there, and 400 animals, camels, horses, mules, and fowl. And in the crowd were women, children, and a number of men with swords at their belts and rifles slung on their shoulders. The Englishman had several suitcases filled with books, which were a babble of noise, and the leader had to repeat himself several times for everyone to understand what exactly he was saying. There are a lot of different people here, and each has his own God, but the only God I serve is Allah, and in this name, in his name, I swear that I will do everything possible once again to win out over the desert, but I want each and every one of you to swear by the God that you believe in that you will follow my orders no matter what. In the desert, disobedience means death. There was a murmur from the crowd. Each was swearing quietly to his or her own God. The boy swore to Jesus Christ. The Englishman said nothing, and the murmur lasted longer than a simple vow would have. The people were also praying to heaven for protection. A long note was sounded on a bugle, and everyone mounted up. 
the boy and the Englishman had brought the camels and climbed uncertainty onto their backs. The boy felt sorry for the Englishman camel, loaded down as he was with the cases of books. There's no such thing as a coincidence, said the Englishman, picking up the conversation where it had been interrupted in the warehouse. I am here because a friend of mine heard an Arab who... But the caravan began to move, and it was impossible to hear what the Englishman was saying. The boy knew what he was about to describe, though, a mysterious chain that links one thing to another, the same chain that had caused him to become a shepherd, that had caused his reoccurring dream, that had brought him to a city near Africa and to find a king and to be robbed in order to meet a crystal merchant, and the closer one gets to realizing his personal legend the more that personal legend becomes his true reason for being, thought the boy. The caravan moved toward the cast. It traveled during the morning, halted when the sun was at its strongest, and resumed late in the afternoon. The boy spoke very little with the Englishman, who spent most of his time with his books. The boy observed in silence the progress of the animals and people across the desert. Now everything was quite different from how it was that day that they had set out, then there had been confusion and shouting, the cries of children and whinnying of animals, all mixed with the nervous orders of the guides and merchants. But in the desert, there was only the sound of the eternal wind and of the hoofbeats of the animals. Even the guides spoke very little to one another. I've crossed these sands many times, said one of the camel drivers one night. But the desert is so huge and the horizons are so distant that they make a person feel small, as if he should remain silent. The boy understood intuitively what he meant, even without ever having set foot in the desert before. Whenever he saw the sea or fire, he fell silent, impressed by their elemental force. I've learned things from sheep and I've learned things from crystal, he thought. I can learn something from the desert, too. It seems old and wise. The wind had never stopped, and the boy remembered the day that he sat at the fort in Tarifa with the same wind blowing in his face. It reminded him of the wool from his sheep, his sheep who were now seeking food and water in the fields of Andalusia, as they always did. They're not my sheep anymore, he said to himself without nostalgia. They must be used to their new shepherd and have probably already forgotten me. That's good. Creatures like sheep that are used to traveling know about moving on. He thought about the merchant's daughter and was sure that she'd probably married, perhaps to the baker or another shepherd who could read and tell her exciting stories. After all, he probably wasn't the only one, but he was excited at his intuitive understanding of the camel driver's comment. Maybe he was also learning the universal language that deals with the past and present of all people. Hunches his mother used to call them. The boy was beginning to understand that intuition is really a sudden immersion of the soul into that universal current of life where the histories of all the people are connected and we're able to know everything because it's all written there. Mektab, the boy said, remembering the crystal merchant. The desert was all sand in some stretches and rocky in others. When the caravan was blocked by a boulder, it had to go it had to go around it, and if there was a large rocky area, they had to make a major detour. If the sand was too fine for the animals' hooves, they sought a way where the sand was more substantial. 
In some places, the ground was covered with the salt of dried up lakes. The animals balked at such places, and the camel drivers were forced to dismount and unburden their char charges. The drivers carried the freight themselves over such treacherous footing and then reloaded the camels. If a guide were to fall ill or die, the camel drivers would draw lots and appoint a new one. But all this happened for one basic reason. No matter how many detours and adjustments it made, the caravan moved toward the same compass point. Once obstacles were overcome, it returned to its course, sighting on a star that indicated the location of the oasis. When people saw that star shining in the morning sky, they knew that they were on the right course toward the water, palm trees, shelter, and other people. It was only the Englishman who was unaware of all of this. He was, for the most part, immersed in reading his books. The boy, too, had his book, and he had tried to read it during the first few days of the journey, but he found it much more interesting to observe the caravan and listen to the wind. As soon as he had learned how to know the, the camel and the banter that happened around him and establish a relationship with the camel driver, he threw the book away. Although the boy had developed a superstition that each time he opened the book, he would learn something important, he decided it was unnecessary and that it was a burden. He became friendly with the camel driver who traveled alongside him, and at night they sat around a fire. The boy related to the driver and talked about his adventures as a shepherd. During one of those conversations, the driver told of one of his own life. I used to live near Alcarium, he said. I had my orchard, my children, and a life that would change not at all until I died. One year, when the crop was its best ever, we all went to Mecca, and I satisfied the only unmet obligation in my life. I could die happily, and that made me feel good. One day, the earth began to tremble, and the Nile overflowed its banks. It was something that I thought could happen only to others, but never to me. My neighbors feared they would all lose their olive trees in the flood, and my wife was afraid that we would lose our children. I thought that everything I owned would be destroyed. The land was ruined, and I had to find some other way to earn a living, so now I'm a camel driver. But that disaster taught me to understand the word of Allah. People need not fear the unknown if they are capable of achieving what they need and what they want. We are afraid of losing what we have, whether it's our life or our possessions and property. But this fear evaporates when we understand that life stories and the history of the word were written by the same hand. Sometimes their caravan met with another. One always had something that the other needed, as if everything were indeed written by one hand. As they all sat around the fire, the camel drivers exchanged information about the windstorms and told stories about the desert. At other times, mysterious hooded men would appear. They were Bedouins, and they did surveillance along the caravan route. They provided warnings about thieves and barbarian tribes, they came in silence and departed the same way, dressed in black garments that showed only their eyes. One night, a camel driver came to the fire where the Englishmen said the boy were sitting. There are rumors of tribal wars, he told them. The three fell silent. 
the boy noted that there was a sense of fear in the air, even though no one had said anything. Once again, he was experiencing the language without words of the universal language. The Englishman had asked if they were in danger. Once you get into the desert, there's no going back, said the camel driver. And when you can't go back, you have to worry only about the best way of moving forward. The test is up to Allah, including the danger. And he concluded it by saying the mysterious word, Mektam. You should pay more attention to the caravan, the boy said to the Englishman after the camel driver had left. We make a lot of detours, but we're always headed for the same destination. And you ought to read more about the world, answered the Englishman. Books are like caravans in, the, in that respect. The immense collection of people and animals began to travel faster. The days had always been silent, but now even the nights, even when the travelers were accustomed to talking around the fires, had also become quiet. And one day the leader of the caravan made the decision that the fire should no longer be lighted so as not to attract attention to the caravan. The travelers adopted the practice of arranging the animals in a circle at night, sleeping together in the center as protection against the nocturnal cold, and the leader posted armed sentinels at the fringes of the group. The Englishman was unable to sleep one night. He called to the boy, and they took a walk along the dunes surrounding the encampment. There was a full moon, and the boy told the Englishman the story of his life. The Englishman was fascinated with a part of the progress that achieved the crystal shop after the boy began working there. That's the principle that governs all things, he said. In alchemy, it's called the soul of the world. When you want something with all of your heart, that's when you are closest to the soul of the world. It's always a positive force. He also said that this was not just a human gift, that everything on the face of the earth had a soul, whether it was a mineral, a vegetable, an animal, or even just a simple thought. Everything on earth is being continuously transformed because the earth is alive and it has a soul. We are part of that soul, so we rarely recognize that it is working for us. But in the crystal shop, you probably realize that even the glasses were collaborating in your success. The boy thought that for a while, as he looked at the moon and the bleached sands. I've watched the caravan as across the desert, he said. The caravan and the desert speak the same language, and it's for that reason that the desert allows the crossing. It's going to test the caravan's every step to see if it's in time, and if it is, we will make it to the oasis. If either of us had joined this caravan based only on personal courage, but without the understanding that language, this journey would have been much more difficult. They stood there, looking at the moon. That's the magic of the omen, said the boy. I've seen how the guides read the signs of the desert, and how the soul of the caravan speaks to the soul of the desert. The Englishman said, I'd better pay more attention to the caravan, and I'd better read your books said the boy. They were strange books. They spoke about mercury, salt, dragons, and kings, and he didn't understand any of it. But there was one idea that seemed to repeat itself through all of the books. All things are the manifestation of one thing only. In one of the books, he learned that the most important text in the literature of alchemy contained only a few lines and had been inscribed on the surface of an emerald. 
it's the emerald tablet said the englishman proud that he might teach something to the boy well listen why do we all need these books the boy asked so that we can understand those few lines the englishman answered without appearing really to believe what he said the book that most interested the boy told the stories of famous alchemists they were men who had dedicated their entire lives to the purification of metals in their laboratories and they believed in that it was if there were a it was if there were a metal that had been heated for many years that it could free itself of all of its individual properties and what was left could be the soul of the world this soul of the world allowed them to understand anything on the face of the earth because it was the language in which all things were communicated. They called the discovery of the masterwork, or it was part liquid and part solid in masterwork, as far as it's concerned. Can you just observe men and omens in order to understand the language, the boy asked. You have a mania for simplifying everything, answered the Englishman, irritated. Alchemy is a serious discipline. Every step has to be followed exactly as it was followed by the masters. The boy learned that the liquid part of the masterwork was called the elixir of life and that it cured all illnesses, but it also kept the alchemists from growing old and the solid part was called the philosopher's stone. It's not easy to find the philosopher's stone, said the Englishman. The alchemists spent years in their laboratories observing the fire that purified the metals they spent so much time close to the fire that they gradually gave up on the vanities of the world. They discovered that the purification of the metals had led to a purification of themselves. The boy thought about the crystal merchant. He had said that it was a good thing for the boy to clean the crystal pieces so that he could free himself from the negative thoughts. The boy was becoming more and more convinced that the alchemy could be learned in one's daily life. Also, said the Englishman, the philosopher's stone has a fascinating property. A small silver on the stone can transform large quantities of metal into gold. Having heard that, the boy became even more interested in alchemy. He thought that, with some patience, he would be able to transform everything into gold. He read into the lives of various people who had succeeded in doing so. Helvectus, alias Fulcinelli and jaber they were fascinating stories each of them lived on his own personal legend all the way to the end they traveled spoke with wise men performed miracles for the incredulous and owned the philosopher's stone and the elixir of life but when the boy wanted to learn how to achieve the masterwork he became completely lost there were just drawings coded instructions and obscure texts why do they make things so complicated, he asked the Englishman one night. The boy had noticed that the Englishman was irritable and missed his books. So that those who have responsibility for understanding can understand, he said. Imagine if everyone went around transforming lead into gold. Gold would lose its value. It's only those who are persistent and willing to study things deeply who achieve the master work. That's why I'm here in the middle of the desert. I am seeking a true alchemist who will help me to decipher the codes. When were these books written, the boy asked. Many centuries ago. They didn't have the printing press in those days, the boy argued. There's no way for everybody to know alchemy. Why did they use such strange language with no, so many drawings? 
The Englishman didn't answer him directly. He said that for the past few days he had been paying attention to the caravan as it operated, but he hadn't learned anything new. The only thing that he had noticed was that the talk of war was becoming more and more frequent. Then one day, the boy returned the books to the Englishman. Did you learn anything, the Englishman asked, eager to learn what it might be. He needed someone to talk to, so to avoid thinking about the possibility of war. I learned that the world has a soul, that whoever understands that soul can also understand the language of things. I learned that many alchemists realized their personal legends and wound up discovering the soul of the world, the philosopher's stone, and the elixir of life. But, above all, I learned that these things are all so simple that they could be written on the surface of an emerald. The Englishman was disappointed. The years of research, the magic symbols, the strange swords, and the laboratory equipment, none of this had made an impression on the boy. His soul must be too primitive to understand those things, he thought. He took back his books and packed them away again into their bags. Go back to watching the caravan, he said. That didn't teach me anything either. The boy went back to contemplating the silence of the desert and the sand raised by the animals. Everyone has his or her own way of learning things, he said to himself. His way isn't the same as mine, nor mine to his, but we're both in search for our personal legends, and I respect him for that. The caravan began to travel day and night. The hooded Bedouins reappeared more and more frequently, and the camel driver, who had become a good friend of the boy, explained that the war between the tribes had already begun. The caravan would be very lucky to reach the oasis. The animals were exhausted, and the men talked amongst themselves less and less. The silence was the worst aspect of the night, and there were mere growing of a camel, which before had meant nothing but the groan of a camel now frightened everyone because it might be a signal to a raid. The camel driver, though, seemed not to worry or be very concerned with the threat of war. I'm alive, he said to the boy, as they ate a bunch of dates one night with no fires and no moon. When I'm eating, that's all I think about. If I'm on the march, I just concentrate on marching. If I have to fight, it'll be just as good as a day to die as any other. Because I don't live either my past or my future, I'm interested only in the present. If you concentrate always on the present, you'll be a happy man. If you'll see that there's life in the desert, then there are stars in the heavens, and that tribesmen fight because they are part of the human race. Life will be a party for you, a grand festival, because life is the moment that we're living in right now. Two nights later, as he was getting ready to go to bed, the boy looked for the star that they followed every night. He thought that the horizon was a bit lower than it had been because it seemed to see, he seemed to see stars on the desert himself. It's the oasis, said the camel driver. Well, why don't we go there right now, the boy asked, because, because we have to sleep, the driver said. The boy awoke as the sun rose. There in front of him, where the small stars had been the night before, was an endless row of date palms stretching across the entire desert. We've done it, said the Englishman, who had also awakened early. But the boy was quiet. He was at home with the silence of the desert, and he was content just to look at the trees. He had still been a long way to reach the pyramids, and some day this morning would be just a memory 
but this was just the present moment, the party the camel driver had mentioned, and he wanted to live it as if he had done the lessons of his past and the dreams of his future, although the vision of the dated palms would someday be just a memory. Right now, it's significant shade. It, it signified shade, water, and refuge from the war. Yesterday, the camel's groan signaled danger, and now rows of date palms could herald a miracle. The world speaks any language, the boy thought, and this was a sign of many. The times rushed past, and so did the caravans, thought the alchemist as he watched the hundreds of people and arrivals arriving at the oasis people were shouting at the new arrivals dust obscured the desert sun and the children of the oasis were bursting with excitement at the arrival of the strangers the alchemist saw the tribal chiefs greet the leader of the caravan and converse with him at length but none of that mattered to the alchemist he had already seen many people and come and gone and the desert remained as it was he had seen kings and beggars walking along the desert sands. The dunes were changed constantly by the wind, yet these were the same sands that had known that he had known since he was a child. He always enjoyed seeing the happiness that the travelers experienced when, after a few weeks of yellow sand and blue sky, they first saw the green of the date palms. Maybe God had created the desert so that man could appreciate the date palms, he thought. He decided to concentrate on a more practical matter. He knew that the caravan was a man to whom he, the caravan driver was a man to whom he could teach some of his secrets. The omens had taught him so. He didn't know the man yet, but he practiced, but his practiced eye would recognize him when he appeared. He'd hoped that it would be someone as capable as his previous apprentice. I didn't know why these things have to be so transmitted by word of mouth, he thought. It wasn't exactly what they were that they were secrets. God revealed his secrets easily to all of his creatures. He had only the explanation for this fact. Things have to be transmitted this way because they were made up from a, from the pure life. And this kind of life cannot be captured in pictures or words. Because people become fascinated with pictures and words and wind up forgetting the language of the world. The boy couldn't believe what he was seeing in the oasis rather than being just a well rather than being just well surrounded by a few palm trees, as he had seen once in a geography book, it was much larger and than many towns back in Spain. There were 300 wells, 50,000 date trees, and immeasurable colored tents spreading amongst them. It looks like a thousand and one nights, said the Englishman, impatient to meet with the alchemist. They were surrounded by children, curious to look at the animals and people that were arriving. The men of the oasis wanted to know if they had been what they had been fighting and the women competed with one another for access to the cloth and precious stones bought by the merchants the silence of the desert was a distant dream the travelers in the caravan were talking incessantly laughing and shouting as if they had emerged from the spiritual world and found themselves once again in the world of people they were relieved and happy they had been taking care of precautions in the desert but the camel driver explained to the boy 
that the oasis were always considered to be neutral territories because the majority of the inhabitants were women and children. There were oasises throughout the desert, but the tribesmen fought in the desert, leaving the oasis as a, as a place of refuge. I'm going to stop there. We are in part two. We are halfway through part two. Hopefully you were able to hear me okay. And hopefully I went slow enough to understand. I uh, have a time clock clicking uh, in front of me uh, where Anchor is going to cut me off since I went commercial free. So I'm going to stop there. Uh, for those of you following along, this was on page 88, uh, right in the middle of page 88. So I will begin there next Sunday, and I can't wait for you to join me as well. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful morning and afternoon and a good night.